I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, but in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. Ah, well, it seems that you've stumbled into the mansion of Leaves of Glen, where I read the hottest in public domain uh, books and short stories. Uh, this week we're reading David Copperfield by Charles Dickens, uh, Chapter 5. It's the eighth novel by him, Charles Dickens. Uh, first published as a serial in 1849 through 1850, and then he made it into a book after that. And it's widely considered uh, its most popular work. I'm terrified as I record this because I'm recording the first half of this uh, kind of a week early and then I'll record the next half uh, sometime this weekend. Between now and when this episode is released on Thursday, uh, anything in America can happen. What world is this new episode going to be dropped into? What what horrible things are going to happen? We've learned uh, since... The, uh, the the riot and the uh, coup attempt at the Capitol, that uh, it looks like a bunch of Republican senators were in on it and, uh, and aiding them. What the hell is going on? <laughs> this is insane. So I'm terrified as I recur- uh, record the first half of this. Uh, there's going to be a, a Glenn before probably some giant horrible incident, and then I'll record the second half uh, as a Glenn after some... I I don't look forward to what my closing comments are going to say compared to the opening comments. Well, let's learn a little bit about the author. Charles Dickens, born 7th of February, 1812. He died the 9th of June, 1870. Uh, I've run out of fun facts about him, so I I found on a of the website Mental Floss, uh, just about Charles Dickens in general. Uh, and it turns out that he spent time being a magician. And so this is something I'm going to drag out over a couple episodes. Uh, but the first part of this is, in the summer of 1849, a magician going by the name of Rhea Rama Ruse gave a performance in Bond Church, a coastal resort on the Isle of Wight off the southern coast of England, billed as the unparalleled necromancer and claiming to have been educated cabalistically in the orange groves of Salamanca. Rue's conjuring act featured several bizarre tricks, uh, including making playing cards uh, magically burst into flames, uh, transporting a woman's watch from inside a wooden box uh, uh, and into the middle of a loaf of bread, and uh, even cooking a steaming hot plum pudding uh, in, a, in a gentleman's top hat. The tricks like that, the act was undoubtedly uh, had been more memorable show, but what made it all the more impressive was the eccentric conjurer, Rhea Rama Ruse, was in fact the great English novelist, Charles Dickens. Isn't that fun? Yeah, it's fun. Makes you not think about other... I, I spent part of my day today watching this compiled recap of all the events leading up to the attack on the Capitol, and it is far more violent 
than you're seeing. If you just watch the live footage, it, what the people did to the cops that were trying to prevent them from getting in was insanely violent. Like, it is not surprising that someone got shot. Well, let's recap on the previous chapter. David's return home sucks. Uh, his new dad is creepy, and he's got this weird ideology that involves uh, the word firmness multiple times. So that's disturbing. Uh, he's got a sister who he has come live with him. Uh, so he's slumming off his new wife, living in her dead husband's mansion, of her dead husband's money. And uh, he brought his sister in to get in on the, get in on the grift. Uh... There's a, a scene, so since he has to learn from uh, being homeschooled, now suddenly he's got to do all of his lessons with a new dad and the, the step-aunt or whatever sitting around watching him. And every time he screws up, they yell at him. So it makes him even more nervous, and he sucks even worse at his schoolwork. Uh, so then there's a beating scene later, which was disturbing and uh Weirdly more emotional than I thought it was going to be. Oh, thank God the clock's going. Uh, there's a creepy scene where Peggy decides to uh, tell David you're getting sent off to a different school uh, away from home, and then she starts kissing him through the keyhole, and then he kisses her back. All right, with that, let's get into the story. Uh, Chapter 5, I am sent away from home. We might have gone about a half a mile, and my pocket handkerchief was quite wet through, when the carrier stopped short, looking out to ascertain uh, for what I saw to my amazement, Peggy burst from a hedge and climbed in the cart. She took me in in both her arms and squeezed me uh, to her stays until the uh, pressure on my nose was extremely painful, uh, though I never thought of that till afterwards when I found it uh, very tender. Not a single word did Peggy speak. Releasing one of her arms, she put down in her pocket to the elbow and brought out uh, some paper bags of cakes, ah, ah, which was crammed into my pockets, and uh, in a purse which she put in my hand, uh, but not one word did she say. After another and a final squeeze with both arms, she got down from the cart and ran away. And uh, my belief is she has always been without a solitary button on her gown. Uh, I picked up one of several that were rolling about and treasured it as a keepsake for a long time. Oh, that's right. Every time she gets upset, all the buttons burst off her dresses. Just weird. The carrier looked at me as if to inquire if she were coming back, and I shook my head. And said, uh, I thought not, then come up, said the carrier to the lazy horse, uh, who was, uh, came up accordingly. Having by this time cried as much as I possibly could, I began to think it was no use crying anymore, uh, especially as neither Roderick Random nor the captain of the Royal British Navy had ever cried. Uh, that I could remember. In trying situations, the carrier, seeing me in this resolution, proposed that my pocket handkerchief should be spread upon the horse's back to dry. <laughs> That's weird. Like the horse's back is some kind of radiator. That just seems weird. I mean, I guess it's fine. I don't know. Whatever. I thanked him and assented. And uh, the peculiarity, uh, it, small it looked, under those circumstances, I had now leisure to examine the purse. That was a stiff leather purse with a, with a with a snap. 
It had three bright shillings in it, which Peggotty had evidently polished up uh, with whitening. For my greater delight, but it was most precious, contents were the two half-crowns folded together in a bit of paper, on which was written, in my mother's hands, for Davy, with my love. Oh, I was so overcome by this that I asked the carrier to be so good as to reach uh, me my pocket handkerchief again but said that he thought he'd better do without it, and I thought I really had, so I wiped my eyes on my sleeve and stopped myself. For good, too, though, in consequence of my previous emotions, I was still occasionally seized with a stormy sob. Uh, After we had jogged on for some little time, I asked the carrier if he was going all the way. Ugh. Uh, all the way where? (laughs) Inquired the carrier. Apparently the carrier... I was thinking the same thing I was thinking. There, I said. Uh, where's there? inquired the carrier. Near London, I said. Uh, why, that horse, said the carrier, jerking the rein uh, to point him out, would be deader than pork before he got over half the ground. Are you only going to Yarmouth then? I asked. Ah, that's about it, said the carrier. And there I shall take you to the stage cutch. And the stage cutch that'll take you to uh, wherever it is. As this was a great deal for the carrier, whose name was Mr. Barkus, <laughs> to say. Uh, I've always heard he has weird names for characters in these books, but uh, I kind of like Mr. Barkus. To say, he being, I observed in a former chapter of... Uh, Flemic temperament, and uh, not at all conversational. I offered him a cake as a mark of attention, which he ate in one gulp, exactly uh, like an elephant, <laughs> which made no more impression on his big face than it would have done uh, on the elephants. Did she make him now? said Mr. Barkus, always leaning forward in a slouching way on the footboard of the cart, with his arm on each knee. Peggotty, do you mean, sir? Ah, said Mr. Parkes. Her. Yes, she makes all our pastry and does all our cooking. Doth she, though, said Mr. Parkes. That came out my mouth really weird. Do she, though? That's what I meant to say. I don't know what my mouth did. He made up his mouth as if to, uh, to whistle. But he didn't whistle. He sat looking at the horse's ears as if he saw something new there and sat so for a considerable time. By and by, he said, "Eh, No sweethearts, I believe. Eh, Sweet meats, did you say, eh, Mr. Barkis? For I thought he wanted something else to eat and had pointedly alluded to the description of refreshment. Hearts, said Mr. Barkis. Sweethearts. Eh, No person walks with her. Uh, with Peggy? I said her. Nah, uh, no. She never had a sweetheart. Uh, didn't she, though? said Mr. Parkes. Burp. Again, he made up his mouth to whistle. And again, he did not whistle, but sat there looking at the horse's ears. So she makes, said Mr. Parkes, after a long interval of reflection, all the apple pastries, uh, and the dews, and all the cooking, do she? I replied that such was the fact. Well, I'll tell you what, said Mr. Parkes. Perhaps you might be writing to her. I certainly shall write to her, I rejoined. Ah, he said, slowly turning his eyes toward me. Well, if you was a writing to her, 
Perhaps you'd recollect to say that Barkus was willing. Uh, would you? Uh, that Barkus is willing? I repeated innocently. Is that all the message? Ye yes. Y e e s with a dash in the middle. Pretty cool. Uh, he said, considering ye yes, Barkus is willing. But you will be at Blunderstone again tomorrow, Mister Barkus. I said, faltering a little at the idea of my being far away from it then, and uh, could give your own message so much better. As he repudiated the suggestion, however, with a with a jerk of his head, and once more confirmed his previous request by saying with profound gravity, Barkus is willing. That's the message. I readily undertook its transmission. While I was uh, waiting for the coach at the Hotel Yarmouth uh, that very afternoon, I procured a, a, procured a sheet of paper uh, and, a, and an inkstand and wrote a note to Peggotty, which ran thus. My dear Peggotty, I have come here safe. Barkus is willing. <laughs> My love to Mama. Yours affectionately. P.S. He says he is peculiarly wants to... Uh, wants you to know Barkis is willing in italics. When I had taken this commission on myself, prospectively, Mr. Barkis relapsed to a perfect silence, and I, feeling quite worn out by all that had happened lately, lay down on a, on a sack in the cart and fell asleep. I slept soundly until we got to Yarmouth, which was so entirely new and strange to me in the inn yard in which we drove that I at once abandoned the latent hope I had had of meeting with some of uh, Mr. Peggy's family there, perhaps eh, even with little Emily herself. The coach was in the yard, shining very much all over, but without any uh, horses to it as yet, and it looked in that state as if nothing was more unlikely than it ever going to London. I was thinking this and wondering what would ultimately become of my, my box, which Mr. Barkus had put down on the yard pavement by the pole. He is having driven up the yard to turn his cart. And also, uh, what would ultimately become of me? When a, when a lady looked out of a bow window where some fowls and joints of meat were hanging and said, Is this a... Is this the little gentleman from Blunderstone? Uh, yes, ma'am, I said. What name? inquired the lady. Copperfield, ma'am, I said. Now that won't do, returned the lady. Nobody's debtor is paid for hearing that name. <sighs> is it Murdstone, ma'am? I said. I have your master Murdstone, said the lady. Why do you go and give another name first? I explained... To the lady how it was, uh, who then rang a bell and called out, uh, William, show the coffee room. Uh, upon which a waiter came running out of a kitchen on the opposite side of the yard to show it, and seemed a, a good deal surprised when he was already uh, only there to show it to me. It was uh, a large, long room with some large maps in it. I doubt if I could have had felt much stranger if the maps had been real foreign countries, and I cast away in the middle of them. I felt it was taking a liberty to sit down with my cap in my hand on the corner of the chair nearest the door, and uh, when the waiter uh, laid a cloth on the purpose for me. Uh, he put a set of casters on it, and I think I must have turned red all over with modesty. He brought me some uh, chops and uh, uh, vegetables and took the covers off in such a bouncing manner that I was afraid I must have given him some sort of uh, offense, but he greatly relieved my mind by putting a chair for me at the table, saying very affably, Now, uh, six foot, 
Come on. I thanked him and took my seat at the board, but found it extremely difficult to handle my knife and fork with anything like dexterity or to avoid splashing myself uh, with the gravy while he was standing opposite, staring so hard and making me blush in the most dreadful manner every time I caught his eye. He gets really intimidated by authority figures watching him. After watching me into the second chop, he said, There's a half, uh, there's a half pint of ale for you. Will you have it now? Oh, he's giving underage kids alcohol. I thanked him and said, Yes. Upon which he poured it out of a jug onto a large tumbler and held it up against the light and made it look, ooh, beautiful. My eye, he said. It seems a good deal, don't it? It does seem a good deal, I answered with a smile, for it was quite delightful to me to find him so pleasant. He was a twinkling-eyed, pimple-faced man, with his hair standing upright all over his head, and as he stood with one arm akimbo, holding up the glass to the light with the other hand, he looked quite friendly. There was a gentleman here yesterday, he said, a, a, a stout gentleman by the name of Topsawyer. Perhaps you know him? No, I said, I don't think. In breeches and gaiters, broad-brimmed hat, great coat, speckled choker, said the waiter. No, I said bashfully, I haven't the pleasure. He came in here, said the waiter, looking at the light through the tumbler, ordered a glass of this ale, would, would order it, I told him not, drank it, and fell dead. It was too old for him. It oughtn't to have been drawn. That's the fact. Well, I was very much shocked to hear of this melancholy accident. I said I thought I'd better have some water. Why, you see, said the waiter, still looking uh, at the light through the tumbler with uh, one of his eyes shut up. Our people don't like things being ordered and left. It offends them. But I'll drink it if you like. Uh, I'm used to it. And use is everything. I don't think it'll hurt me if I throw my head back and, and take it off quick. Eh, shall I? Now I replied, he would much oblige me by drinking it if he thought he could do it safely, but by no means otherwise. When he did throw his head back and take it off quick, I had a horrible feel, I conf uh, fear, I confess, of seeing him meet the fate of the lamented Mr. Top Sawyer. And, uh, and fall lifeless on the carpet. But eh, it didn't hurt him. On the contrary, uh, I thought he seemed the fresher for it. Hey, what do we got here? He said, putting a fork into my dish. Eh, not chops. Chops, I said. Lord bless my soul, he exclaimed. I didn't know that they were chops. Why, uh, a chop's the very thing to take off the bad effects of that beer. Ain't it lucky? So I took a chop by the bone on the hand and a potato in the other and uh, ate away with a very good appetite uh, to my extreme satisfaction. He afterwards took another chop and another potato and after that another chop uh, and another potato. And when we had done, he brought me a, brought me a pudding and having said it before me, seemed to ruminate and to become absent in his mind for some moments. How's a pie? He said, rousing himself. It's, it's a pudding, I made answer. Yeah, pudding, he exclaimed. Oh, I bless me, so it is. But looking at it near, you don't mean to say it's a, a batter pudding. Yes, it is indeed. Why, uh, a batter pudding, he said, taking up a tablespoon, is my favorite pudding. Ain't, ain't that lucky? Come on, little one, and uh, let's see who'll get 
most. The waiter certainly got most. He had treated me more than once to come in and win, but what with the tablespoon to my tablespoon, his dispatch to my dispatch, his appetite to my appetite, I was left far behind at his first mouthful, and no chance with him. I never saw anyone enjoy a pudding eh, so much, I think, uh, and he laughed when it was all gone, as if his enjoyment of it lasted still. Finding him so very friendly and companionable, it was then that I asked for the pen and the ink and the paper to write Peggotty. Not only brought it immediately, but it was good enough uh, to look over me while I wrote the letter. And when I had finished it, he asked me where I was going to school. I said, uh, near London, which was all I knew. Oh, ah, my eye, he said, looking very low-spirited. I am sorry for that. Uh, why? I asked him. Oh, Lord, he said, shaking his head. Uh, that's the school where they broke the boy's ribs. Uh, mm, two ribs. A little boy he was, I should say he was. Uh, let me see. How old are you about? Uh, I told him between eight and nine. Uh, that's just his age, he said. He was eight years and six months old when they broke his first rib. Uh, eight years and eight months old when they broke his second and did for him. Well, I could not disguise uh, from myself and from the waiter that this was an uncomfortable coincidence and inquired how it was done. His answer was not cheery to my spirits, for it consisted of two, di two dismal words, with whooping. The blowing of the coach horn in the yard was a seasonable di diversion, which made me get up and uh, hesitatingly inquire, in the mingled pride and diffidence of having a purse, which I took out of my pocket, if there were anything to pay. Uh, there's a sheet of letter paper, he returned. Did you ever buy a sheet of letter paper? Could not remember that I ever had. It's dear, he said, on account of the duty. Three pence. Uh, that's the way we're taxed in this country. There's nothing else except the waiter. Uh, never mind the ink. I lose by that. Uh, what should you... What should I... How much ought I... What would it be right to pay the waiter, if you please? I stammered, blushing. If I hadn't a family, and that family uh, was hadn't the cowpock said the waiter, burp, I wouldn't have, take a sixpence. If I didn't support an aged parent uh, and a lovely sister, here the waiter was greatly agitated, uh, I wouldn't take a farthing. If I had a good place and was treated well here, I should beg acceptance of a trifle instead of taking of it. But I live on broken whittles, and I sleep on the coals. Here the waiter burst into tears. This is really dramatic, and didn't take much to get there. I was very much concerned for his misfortunes and felt that eh, any recognition short of nine pence would be a mere brutality and hardness of heart. Therefore, I gave him one of my three bright shillings, which he received with much humility and veneration, uh, and spun up his thumb directly afterwards to try the goodness of. It was a little disconcerting to me uh, to find that when I was being helped up behind the coach that I was supposed to have eaten all the dinner without any assistance. I discovered this from overhearing the lady in the bow window say to the guard, uh, Take care of that child, George, or he'll burst. And from observing that the women's servants who were about the place came out to look and giggle at me as a young phenomenon. My unfortunate friend, uh, the waiter, who had never quite recovered his spirits, did not appear to uh, be disturbed by this, but joined in the general admiration without uh, being at all confused. If I had any doubt of him, I suppose this 
half awakened it, but I am inclined to believe that with the simple confidence of a child and the natural reliance, oh, I don't know why I was going with that, of a child upon superior years, qualities, I am very sorry, any children uh, should prematurely change for worldly wisdom, I have no serious mistrust of him on the whole even then. I felt it rather hard, I must own, uh, to be made without deserving it, the subject of jokes between the coachman and the guard as to the coach drawing heavy behind, on account of my sitting there, and as to the greater expediency of my traveling by wagon. The story of my supposed appetite getting wind among the outside passengers as they were merry upon it likewise, and asked me whether I was going to be paid for uh, at school as two brothers or uh, or three. Ah. Chubby, and whether I was uh, contracted for or went upon the regular terms with other pleasant questions. Eh, but the worst of it was that I knew I should be ashamed to eat anything when an opportunity offered, and that after rather like dinner I should remain hungry all night, for I had left my cakes behind at the hotel in my hurry. My apprehensions were realized. When we stopped for supper, I couldn't muster courage to take any, though I should have liked it very much, but sat by the fire and said, eh, I didn't want anything. This did not save me from more jokes, either, for a for a husky-voiced gentleman with a, with a, uh, a rough face who had been eating out of a sandwich box nearly all the way, except for when he had been drinking out of a bottle, uh, said I was like a, like a power constrictor. Uh, who took enough at one meal to last him a long time, after which he actually brought a rash out upon himself uh, with boiled beef. Now we started from Yarmouth at uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and we were due in London at about uh, 8 next morning. It was midsummer weather, uh, and the evening was very pleasant. When we passed through the village, I pictured to myself what the insides of the houses were like and what the inhabitants were about, and when boys came running after us and got up behind and swung there for a little way, I wondered whether their fathers were alive. Oh, well, that's sad. And whether they were happy at home. I had plenty to think of, therefore, besides uh, my mind running continually on the kind of place I was going to, which was an awful speculation. Sometimes, uh, I remember, I resigned myself to thoughts of home and peggedy, and to endeavoring uh, in confused blind way to recall how I had felt and what sort of boy I used to be. Uh, before I bit Mr. Murdstone, which I couldn't satisfy myself about in any means, I seemed to have bitten him in such a remote antiquity. The night that was not so pleasant as the evening, for it got, I forgot that he bit him, got, for it got chilly, and uh, being put between two gentlemen, the rough faced one another, to prevent my tumbling off the coach, I was nearly smothered by their falling asleep and completely blocking me up. They squeezed me uh, so hard sometimes that I could not help crying out, Oh, uh, if you please, which they didn't like at all because it woke them. Uh, opposite me was an elderly lady in a great fur cloak who looked into the dark more like a, like a haystack than a lady. She was wrapped up to such a degree. This lady had a basket with her, and she hadn't known what to do with it for a long time until she found that on account of my legs being short, uh, it could go underneath me cramped and hurt me so that it made me perfectly miserable but if I moved in the least and made a, 
It made a glass that was in the basket rattle against something else, as if it were sure to do. She gave me the cruelest poke with her foot and said, Come, don't you fidget. Your bones are young enough, I'm sure. At last, ah, the sun rose. And then my companions seemed to sleep easier. The difficulties under which they had labored all night and which had found utterance in the most terrific gasps and snorts were not to be conceived. As the sun got higher, their sleep became lighter, and so they gradually, one by one, uh, awoke. I recollect being very much surprised by the faint everybody made, then not of having been asleep at all, and by the uncommon indignation uh, with which everyone uh, repelled the charge. I labor under the same kind of astonishment to this day, having invariably observed that all human weaknesses, the ones to which our common nature is the least disposed to confess, I cannot imagine why, is the weakness of having gone to sleep in the coach. What an amazing place London was to me when I saw it in the distance, and how I believed all the adventures of my favorite heroes and the constantly enacting and reenacting there, and how I vaguely made it out of my own mind to be full of wonders and weakness than all the cities of the earth, and I need not stop there to relate, period. <laughs> That's impossible to read out loud. We approached it by degrees and got in due time to the inn of the Whitechapel district for which we were bound. I forget uh, whether it was Blue Ball or Blue Boar, but I know it was the Blue Something and that its likeness was painted up on the back of the coach. Uh, the guard's eye lighted on me as he was laying down, uh, getting down, and he said at the booking office door, eh, is there anybody here uh, for a youngster? Booked in the same name as uh, Murdstone from Blunderstone, Suffolk, to be left till called for? Nobody answered. Uh, try Copperfield, if you please, sir, I said, looking helplessly down. Is there anybody here for a youngster uh, booked in the name of Murdstone from uh, Blunderstone, Suffolk, but owning to the name of Copperfield to be left till called for? said the guard. Come, is there anybody? Oof, a half hour's worth of reading. It's going to be another long chapter. So with that, why don't we, uh, oh, I don't know, take a break, stretch out a little bit, yeah, take a little stretch on the silken sheets of the master bedroom as I read to you uh, from the newest uh, upcoming romance novels. Ah, there you are, uh, on my bed, and you prepared yourself with the gels and other paraphernalia that we normally use during this segment. But no, no, my pet, no, this time I want to indulge in a tickle fetish <laughs> that I have by letting you know about a new romantic comedy uh, called Much Ado About You by Samantha Young. Uh, it's uh, the cozy comforts of an English village bookstore opened up a world of new possibilities for Evie Starling ah, in this charming new romantic comedy from the New York Times no, New York Times best-selling author Samantha Young. They're all New York Times best-selling authors. I don't what what can you do? What what did the last author do to not be one? At 33 years old, Evangeline Starling's life in Chicago is missing that special something. 
And when she's passed over, not for promotion at work, Evie realizes she needs to make a change. Some time away to regain a perspective might be just the thing. In a burst of impulsivity, she plans a holiday in a quaint English village. That just happens. You can just do that. You don't plan that. You just uh, show up. You just land there, and the plane drops you. The holiday package comes with a temporary position at a much-ado-about-books the bookstore located beneath her rental apartment. This is all quaint and completely not realistic. There's no better dream vacation for the bookshevy, a lifelong burp Shakespeare lover. Not only is Evie swept up in running the delightful story as soon as she arrives, uh, she's drawn into the lives, loves, and drama of the friendly villagers. This is all like some weird indie movie. None of this is real. Plus, I would love to get a job at a bookstore, but they don't hire you because it, they don't make enough money. Including Ro- Roanne Robson. R-O-A-N-E. Roanne, I'm, I'm going to move on. The charismatic and sexy farmer who tempts Evie every day with his friendly flirtations. Evie is determined to keep him at bay <laughs> because a holiday romance can only end in heartbreak, right? Question mark. But Evie can't deny uh, their connection and longs to thrust in her handsome farmer uh, that their whirlwind romance could turn into a forever kind of love. Well, that uh, fantasy is available on February 2nd. It's okay. So there you go. (laughs) I don't know why that caught me off guard. I read the word February and I thought it said January. And I'm like, wait, this is old. But no, February 2nd. So it's 16 bucks in paperback. You can get it at all the major retailers. So get in there. Go get it. Pre-order it. And on the cover, it's got an illustration of a, a lady in a short skirt holding a bunch of books. And then uh, some awkwardly awkwardly standing man. It's got like one arm kind of out awkwardly. And, and then there's like a dog for no reason. So I'm sure, oh, it's hilarious. It's sexy. So with that, uh, tickle, tickle, tickle. It's my new fetish right now. Ha, ha, ha. Let's get back into this story. No, there was nobody. I looked anxiously around, but the inquiry made no impression of, uh, on any of the bystanders. If I accept a man in gaiters with one eye who suggested that they had better put a brass collar around my neck and, and tie me up in the stable. Ah, lad, it was brought. And I got down after the lady who was, uh, like a, like a haystack, not daring to stir until her basket was removed. The coach was clear of passengers by that time. The luggage was very soon cleared out. The the horses had been taken out before the luggage. And now the coach itself was wheeled and backed off by some uh, hostlers. What's a hostler? Well, thank God for the Kindle. We're going to find out. A man employed to look after the horses of people staying at an inn. Wow, that's really specific. Out of the way! Still, nobody appeared to claim the dusty youngster from Blunderstone, Suffolk. 
more solitary than Robinson Crusoe, who had nobody to look at him and to see that he was solitary, I went into the booking office and, by invitation of the clerk on duty, passed behind the counter and sat down on the scale at which they weighed the luggage. Here, as I sat looking at the parcels, packages, and books, and inhaling the the smell of the stables, ever since associated with that morning, a procession of the most tremendous considerations began to march through my mind. Supposing nobody should ever fetch me, how long would they consent to keep me there? Would they keep me long enough to spend seven shillings? Should I sleep at night in one of those wooden bins with the other luggage and wash myself at the pump in the yard in the morning? Or should I be turned out every night and expected to come again to be left till called for when the supposing offer when the office opened the next day, supposing there was no mistake in the case, and Mr. Birdstone had devised this plan to get rid of me, and what should I do? If they allowed me to remain there until my seven shillings were spent, I couldn't hope to remain there when I began to starve. That would obviously be inconvenient and unpleasant to the customers, besides entailing on the, the blue whatever it was, the risk of funeral expenses. If I started off at once and tried to walk back home, how could I ever find my way? How could I ever hope to walk so far? How could I make sure of anyone but Peggy? Even if I got back, question mark. If I found out the nearest proper authorities, I would offer myself to go for a soldier or a eh, sailor. I was such a little fellow that it was most likely they wouldn't take me in. These thoughts, and a hundred other such thoughts, turned me burning hot and made me giddy with apprehension and dismay. I was in the height of my fever when a man entered and whispered to the clerk, uh, who presently slanted me off in the scale and pushed me over to him as if I were waited, bought, delivered, and paid for. As I went out to the office, hand in hand with this new acquaintance, I stole a look at him. He was a gaunt, a sallow young man with, with a, uh, uh, hollow cheeks and a, and a chin almost as black as Mr. Murdstone's, but there was the, uh, the likeness ended, for his whiskers were shaved off, and his hair, instead of being glossy, was rusty and dry, and he was dressed in a suit of black clothes, which were rather rusty uh, and dry, too, and rather eh, short in the sleeves and legs, and he had a, a white neckerchief on uh, that was not overclean, and I did not and do not suppose that this neckerchief was all the linen he wore, but it was all he showed or gave any hint of. You're the new boy, he said. Uh, yes, sir, I said. I supposed it was. I didn't know. I'm one of the masters at Salem House, he said. I made a bow and felt very much overawed. I was so ashamed to allude to a commonplace thing like my box, uh, to a scholar and to a master at Salem House, that we had gone some little distance from the yard before I had the hardihood to mention it. Now we turned back uh, on my humbly insinuating that it might be useful for me hereafter, and he told the clerk that the carrier had instructions to call for it at noon. Uh, if, you, if you please, sir, I said, when we had accomplished about the same distance as before, is it far? It's down by Blackheath, he said. Is that far, sir? I said diffidently. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a good step, 
he said. We shall go by the stagecoach. It's about uh, six miles. I was so faint and tired that the idea of holding out for six miles more uh, was too much for me. I took heart to tell him that I had had nothing all night and that if he would allow me to buy something to eat, uh, I should be very much obliged to him. Uh, He appeared surprised at this. I see him stop look at me now, and after considering for a few moments, uh, said he wanted to call an old person who lived not far off, and that the best way would be for me to buy some bread, or uh, whatever I liked best, uh, that was wholesome, and uh, make my breakfast at her house, where we could uh, get some milk. Accordingly, we looked at a baker's window, and after I had made a series of proposals to buy everything that was bilious in the in the shop, and he had rejected them uh, one by one, we decided in favor of of a, of a nice little loaf of brown bread, yeah, which cost me three pence. Then, at a grocer's shop, uh, we, bought, we, uh, we, we bought an egg and a slice of streaky bacon, which still left what I thought a good deal of change out of the second of the uh, bright shillings and made, a consider, uh, made me consider London a very cheap place. These provisions laid in, we went on through a great noise and uproar that can confuse my weary head, beyond description, and over a bridge which no doubt was London Bridge, uh, in parentheses, indeed, I think he told me so, but I was half asleep, until we came to the poor person's house, which was a part of some uh, almshouses. Ooh, what's an almshouses? Uh, a house built originally by a charitable person or organization for poor people to live in. All right. As I knew by their look and by an inscription on a stone over the gate, which said that they were established for 25 poor women, the master at Salem House uh, lifted the little latch of one of a number of little black doors that were all alike and had each a little diamond-paned window on one side, another little diamond-paned window above. And we went into the little house of one of these uh, poor old women who was blowing a fire to make a little, make a little saucepan boil. On seeing the master enter, the old woman stopped with the bellows on her knee and said something that I thought sounded like, My Charlie! But on seeing me come in, too, she got up and, rubbing her hands, made a confused sort of a eh, half-curtsy. Yeah, can you cook this young gentleman's breakfast for him, if you please? said the master at Salem House. Oh, can I? said the old woman. Yes, I can, sure. How's Mrs. Fibbitson today? said the master, looking at another old woman in a large chair by the fire, who was such a bundle of clothes, I feel grateful uh, to this hour for not having sat upon her by mistake. Ah, she's poorly, said the first old woman. It's one of her uh, bad days. If the fire was to go out uh, through any accident, I verily believe she'd go out too. Ha, ha, ha. And never come to life again. Ha, ha, ha. As they looked at her, I looked at her also. Although it was a warm day, she seemed to think of nothing but the fire. I fancied she was jealous even of the uh, of the saucepan on it. And I have reason to know that she took its impressment into the service of boiling my egg and broiling my bacon uh, in dudgeon. For I saw her with my own discomforted eyes shake her fist at me at once, and with those culinary aspirations uh, going on, uh, with no one else was looking, the sun streamed in at the little window, and but she sat with her own back and the back of the large chair toward it, screening the fire as if she were seditiously keeping it warm, instead of it keeping her warm, and watching in a moment distrustful manner. 
The completion of the preparations for my breakfast by relieving the fire gave her such an extreme joy that she laughed ha, 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 aloud in a very unmelodious laugh. Uh, she had, I must say. What does that sound like? I sat down to my brown loaf, my egg, and my rasher of bacon. Ooh, what's a rasher? I'm really just inquisitive tonight. A thin slice of bacon. All right, fine. A rasher means a thin slice of bacon. So I sat down with my egg and my thin slice of bacon. Of bacon? I'll let it go. With a basin of milk? Besides, and made a most delicious meal, while I was yet in the full enjoyment of it, the old woman of the house said to the master, Have you, have you got your flute with you? Yes, he returned. Oh, have a blow at it, said the old woman coaxingly. Do! The master, upon this, put his hand underneath the skirts of his coat and brought out his flute in three pieces, which he screwed together and began immediately to play. My impression is, after many years of consideration, that there can never have been anybody in the world who played worse. He made the most dismal sounds I have ever heard produced by any means, natural or artificial. I don't know what the tunes were, if there were such things in the performance at all, which I doubt, but the influence of the strain upon me was, first, to make me think of all my sorrows until I could hardly keep my tears back. I love the flute playing is so bad it inspires him to think of all the horrible things in his life. Then to take away my appetite. Wow, this is really bad playing. And lastly, to make me so sleepy that I couldn't keep my eyes open. They began to close again, and I began to nod. As the recollection rises fresh upon me, once more the little room with its open corner cupboard and its square back chairs and its angular little staircase leading to the room above and its three peacock feathers displayed over the mantelpiece. I remember wondering when I first went in what that peacock would have thought if it had known that its finery was doomed to come to fades from before me. And I nod and sleep. The flute becomes inaudible. The wheels of the coach are heard instead, and I am on my journey. The coach jolts. I wake with a start, and the flute has come back again, and the master at Salem House is uh, sitting with his legs crossed, playing it dolefully, while the old woman of the house looks on, delighted. She fades in her turn, and he fades, and all fades, and there is no flute. No master, no Salem house, no David Copperfield, no anything but heavy sleep. I dreamed, I thought, that once, while he was blowing into his dismal flute, the old woman of the house, who had gone near and near to him in her ecstatic admiration, leaned over the back of his chair and gave him an affectionate squeeze around the neck, which stopped his playing for a moment. I was in the middle state between sleeping and walking, waking, eh, well, whatever, either then or immediately afterwards, for as he resumed, it was a real fact that he had stopped playing. I saw and heard the same old woman ask Mrs. Fibbitson if it wasn't delicious, meaning the flute, to which Mrs. Fibbitson replied, aye, aye, yes, and nodded at the fire, to which I am persuaded she gave the credit of the whole performance. When I seemed to have been dozing a long while, the master at Salem House unscrewed his flute into three pieces, uh, put them up as before, and took me away. We found the coach very near at hand, and got upon the roof. 
But I was so dead sleepy that when we stopped on the road to take up somebody else, they put me inside uh, where there were no passengers and where I slept profoundly. Until I found the coach going at a foot pace up a steep hill among the green leaves. Presently it stopped and had come to its destination. A short walk brought us, I mean the master and me, to Salem House which was enclosed with a high brick wall and looked very dull. Over, over a door in this wall was a, was a board with Salem House upon it. And through a grating in this door, we were surveyed when he rang the bell by a surly face, which I found on the door being opened. <coughs> well, that was professional. Belonged to a stout man with a bull neck, a wooden leg, overhanging temples, and his hair cut close all around his head. The new boy, said the master. And the man with the wooden leg eyed me all over. It didn't take long, for there was not much of me. And locked the gate behind us and took out a key. We were going up to the house among some dark, heavy trees when he called out after my conductor, Hello! And we walked back, and he was standing at the door of a little lodge where he lived with a pair of boots in his hands. Here, the cobbler's Ben. He said, since you bet out, Mr. Mel, and he says he can't mend them anymore, he says there ain't a bit of the original boot left, and he wonders if you expect it. With these words, he threw the boots toward Mr. Mel, who went back a few paces to pick them up and looked at them very disconsolately. I was afraid. As we went on together, I observed then for the first time that the boots he had on were a, were a good deal the worse for wear, and that his stocking was just breaking out in one place, uh, like a bud. Salem House was a square brick building with wings of a bear and first appearance. All about it was so very quiet that I was said to uh, I said to Mr. Mel, I suppose the boys were out, but he seemed surprised at my not knowing that it was a holiday time and that all the boys were at their several homes. That Mr. Creakle, the proprietor, was down by the seaside with Mrs. and Miss Creakle. Uh, and that I was sent in holiday time as punishment for my misdoing, all of which he explained to me as we went along. I gazed upon the schoolroom into which took me as the most forlorn and desolate place I had ever seen. I see it now. A long room with three long rows of desks, six of forms and bristling all around with pegs for hats and slates, scraps, scraps of old copy books and exercises, litter the dirty foot, some silkworms houses uh, made of the same materials are scattered all over the desks. Two miserable little white mice left behind their owner were running up and down in a fusty castle made of pasteboard, wired, and looking in all corners with their red eyes for anything to eat. A bird in a cage, very little bigger than himself, makes a mournful rattle now and then and hoping and hopping on his perch at two inches high or dropping from it, but neither sings nor chirps. Yeah, there's a strange, unwholesome smell upon the room, uh, like mildewed corduroys. Yeah, sweet, what does mildewed corduroy smell like? Sweet apples, wanting air, and rotten books. Yeah, there could not be, well, be more ink splashed about it, and if it had been roofless from its first construction, and the skies had rained, snowed, hailed, and blown ink through the varying seasons of the year. Mr. Mel, having left me while he took his ir- irreparable boots upstairs, I went softly to the upper end of the room, observing all this as I crept along. Suddenly, I came upon a pasteboard placard, beautifully written, which was lying on the desk, and bore these words, Take care of him, he bites. 
I got on the desk immediately, apprehensive of at least a great dog underneath, but although I looked all around with anxious eyes, I could not see anything of him. I was still engaged and peering about when Mr. Mel came back and asked me uh, what I did up there. I uh, beg your pardon, sir, says I. If you please, I'm looking for the dog. Uh, dog? He says. Well, a dog. Is it a dog, sir? Is it what a dog? Let's be taken care of, sir, that bites. No, Copperfield, says he gravely. That's not a dog. It's a, it's a boy. My instructions are, Copperfield, to put this placard on your back. I'm sorry to make such a beginning with you, but I must do it. And with that, he took me down and tied the placard, which was neatly constructed for the purpose on my shoulders like a, like a knapsack, and wherever I went afterwards, I had the consolation of carrying it. What I suffered from that placard, nobody can imagine whether it was possible for people to see me or not. I always fancied that somebody was reading it. It was no relief to turn round and find nobody. For wherever my back was, there I imagined somebody always to be. That cruel man with the wooden leg aggravated my sufferings. Yeah, he was an authority, and if it ever saw me leaning against a tree or a wall or, or the house... He roared out from his lodge door in a stupendous voice, Hello, hey, sir, you Copperfield. Show that badge conspicuous, or I'll report you. The playground was bare, graveled yard, open to all backs of the house and the offices, and I knew that the servants read it, and the butcher read it, and the baker read it, and everybody, in a word, who came backwards and forwards to the house of a, of a morning when I was ordered to walk there, read that, it was about to be taken care of, for I bit... I recollect that I possibly began to have a dread of myself as a kind of a, a wild boy. Who did bite? Ah, there was an old door in this playground, of uh, which the boys had a custom of carving their names. It was completely covered with such inscriptions. In my dread of the end of the vacation and their uh, coming back, I could not read a boy's name without inquiring in what tone and what emphasis he would read. Take care of him. He bites. Yeah, there's one boy, a certain Jay Steerforth, uh, who cut his name very deep and very often, who I conceived, uh, would read it in a rather strong voice, and afterwards pull my hair. There was another boy, one Tommy Traddles, who I dreaded would make a game of it and pretended to be dreadfully frightened of me. There was a, a third, uh, George Demple, who I fancied would sing it. I have looked... A little shrinking creature at that door until the owners of all the names, there were all forty, uh, five and forty of them in the school then. Uh, Mr. Mel seemed to send me uh, to Coventry by a general acclamation and to cry out, each in his own way, Take care of him! Uh, he bites! It was the same with the places, the desks, and the forms. It was the same with the groves, the deserted bedsteads I peeped at on my way to and when I was in my own bed. I remember dreaming night after night of being with my mother as she used to be, or of, a, or of going to a party at Mr. Peggotty's, or of traveling outside the stagecoach, or of, or of dining again with my unfortunate friend, the waiter. And in all these circumstances, making people scream and stare by the unhappy disclosure that I had nothing on but my little nightshirt and that placard, in the monotony of my life and in my constant apprehension of the reopening of the school, it was such an insupportable affliction, I had long tasks every day to do with Mr. Mel, but I did them. There being no Mr. and Miss Murdstone here, and got through them without disgrace, before and after them. 
Oh, I walked about unsupervised, as I have mentioned, by the man, oh, supervised, by the man with the wooden leg. How vividly I called to mind that damp about the house, the green cracked flagstones in the court, the old leaky water butt, and the discolored trunks of some of the grim trees which seemed to have dripped more in the rain than other trees, and to have to have blown less in the sun. At one we dined, Mr. Bell and I, at the upper end of a long, bare dining room, full of deal tables and smelling of fat. Then we had more tasks until tea, which Mr. Bell drank out of a blue teacup, and I drank out of a tin pot <laughs> all day long until seven or eight in the evening. Mr. Mell, at his own detached desk in the classroom, worked hard with pen, ink, ruler, books, and writing paper, making out the, making out the bills, as I found, for last half year. When he had put up his things for the night, he took out his flute and blew at it till I almost thought he would gradually blow his, his whole being into the large hole at the top and ooze away at the keys. I picture my small self in the dimly lit room sitting with my head upon my hand, listening to the doleful performances of Mr. Mel and conning tomorrow's lessons. I picture myself and with my book shut up. They're still listening to the doleful performance of Mr. Mellon, listening, though I thought he used to be at home, and to the blowing of the wind on Yarmouth Flats, and feeling very sad and solitary. I picture myself going up to bed among the unused rooms and sitting at my bedside crying for a comfortable word from Peggy. And I picture myself coming downstairs in the morning and looking through a long, ghastly gash of a staircase window at the school bell hanging at the top of an outhouse with a weathercock above it and dreading the same time when it shall ring. Jay steers forth, steer forth and the rest to work, which is only a second in my foreboding apprehensions to the time when the man with the wooden leg shall unlock the rusty gate and give admission to the awful Mr. Creakle. I cannot think I was a very dangerous character in any of these aspects, but in all of them I carried the same warning on my back. Mr. Mel never said much to me, but was never harsh to me. I suppose we were company to each other without talking. I forgot to mention that uh, he would talk to himself sometimes, uh, and, and, and grin, and, and clench his fist, and grind his teeth, and... and, and and pull his hair in an unaccountable manner. But he had these peculiarities, and at first they, uh, well, they frightened me, though I soon got used to them. Well, now we retire to the smoking room where we talk about the chapter we just read. Uh, what happened? I broke this up into two different recordings, so it's a little hard to remember, but basically he travels a lot. Uh, first, he's got jerks that he rides with, some woman that makes him uh, put a thing, uh, some sort of box or whatever under his feet, and it's uncomfortable for the entire ride, and they make fun of him for eating too much when he actually didn't. There was a a waiter person who had him order food that he wasn't going to let him eat and uh, had a fun little thing. Oh, you, you like pudding? Uh, you, let's have a pudding war. Try to Who can eat the most of the pudding? He just ate all the pudding. So both whimsical and uh, a horrible human being. 
And then finally he gets to uh, the last place and he gets scooped up by this guy and get brought to the school. And the school is a horrible experience for him. He's by himself. So it's like these empty halls where children once existed. And he's forced to wear a sign around his back. It says, watch out, I'm going to bite. Which is weird and cruel and horrible. And he's got to wear it when there's nobody else around. The kids aren't even in the, in the building yet after the holidays. And so then he's seeing the, the remnants of where children existed, where they carved their names in the doors, and he imagines how horrible they're all going to be to him. And, uh, and that's pretty much it. What's good? Uh, the story's still good. This chapter was uh, you know, mildly interesting, but uh, yeah, still good. Uh, what sucks? How cruel everyone is to this child. But it is part of the story uh, to show how through his abuse he grows to be his own man. Uh, what do we learn? Apparently people are horrible all the time. And maybe this is a lesson we can take from uh, what we've learned in the news here in America over the last week, since uh, last Wednesday or whatever, that uh, people are selfish and greedy and stupid. And uh, and that's pretty much it. Uh, I, I'm was terrified for what's going to happen by the time I record this last segment. And uh, not a whole lot's happened. It's weird what gets normalized, but uh, we have uh, here in Minnesota, uh, a bunch of people have gathered around the Capitol, not too many, uh, a small group, uh, over the weekend. And they uh, were standing out there with guns, which is mind-blowing that they have, you know, rifles and stuff standing around a public place, and none of them are getting arrested or shot at or having the crap beaten out of them like we watched with uh, all the protests that were happening around George Floyd. Uh, These people are treated with kid gloves and uh, treated with respect, which is weird. But there is a bunch of uh, National Guard lining around the state capitol. And so uh, they're prepared for this coming Wednesday, which is going to be terrifying because Biden's going to be inaugurated and all the racists are ready to plan something big. And we'll see what happens. I just don't want to have COVID. Wouldn't that be nice? I guess in England, a new strain of the horrible disease has uh, made itself even more infectious. And uh, your average cloth mask apparently doesn't do much for it. So that's terrifying. Uh, We've got some of that here uh, in America. It hasn't really gotten widespread yet, but it'll happen. And, uh, and it's just a race against the clock trying to get enough vaccines out there and uh, whatever we need. Ugh. 2021, the first month. <laughs> well, with that, thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. Ah, uh, well, it appears you found me in the part of the podcast I hate the most, where I tell you all about the places on the internet where you can find me. You can tell I hate this because of the sound effects making it sound like a stormy night uh, in the drawing room of the damned. Now, there's there's that. Uh, I, I, are you cool? I like cool people. It's the reason why I got involved in this business to begin with, just to meet cool people. 
not losers. So if you're cool, uh, feel free to go over to my website, uh, nuzzlehouse.com. You can see a backlog of everything I've ever read, uh, along with episodes from the Book Boys and uh, blah, blah, blah. You can also find me on Instagram, uh, which is uh, House Nuzzle. And conveniently enough, uh, Twitter, which is also at House Nuzzle. Annoyingly, YouTube made me pick a name instead of just a House Nuzzle. So you got Glenn Nuzzles. So I guess you search for that if you want to watch a screen that doesn't do anything and just hear my voice. Uh, and since, uh, since I think you might be cool, you can always just email me directly. Glenn.Nuzzles at gmail.com but don't uh, don't email if you're a, a nerdlinger or a dork now back to business I can't believe I drank all of them already there's got to be one left